listeners, my name is Nat Vitayata Nasset. And my name is Michael Waits. Our guest today is Rohit Taneja, the co-founder and CEO of Decentral, a full-stack API banking platform. So with Decentral, any companies can save time spend trying to connect to banking infrastructure and focus on faster go-to-market strategy by connecting to Decentral instead. Prior to Decentral, he founded MyPoolin, which was invested by a global VC fund such as Excel Partners, which later got acquired by a company out of the U.S. called Wipmo Incorporation. Hi, Rohit. How are you? Hi, Nat. Hi, Mike. Good to be on the show. Being great. How are you? I'm awesome. great. Thank you. You founded many companies in financial services. What led you to the fintech space? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's mostly, uh, I would say, more of an engineer's realization. So I've been an engineer by training. and I love thinking and designing products, taking them to life and taking them to scale. And I think funnily enough, when you realize that, you know, money is just bits and bytes <laughs> on somebody else's ledger, right? Then you realize that you can actually make something out of it, right? Which nobody else would have thought of because it's ultimately just code. Uh, yeah, that, that was the first thing that really attracted me, you know, to this whole world of index. But surprisingly enough, even though money is so low bandwidth, it's literally just bits and bytes on a computer. It has still been so hard to move, right? And the regulation is the one which is, you know, the culprit here, right? In terms of enabling movement of money. So that was the second thing that really intrigued me a lot. Despite being so easy to understand, why is it so hard to move, right? And yeah, that's essentially, you know, how we got started on index. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I want to back up for a second. You're an IIT Delhi graduate, yeah? Mm-hmm, yeah? Can you explain kind of what the environment is like there and how it leads so many people that go to IIT to become entrepreneurs like right out of the gate? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, honestly, there's no class or training as such, uh, which a lot of people might think that yeah, there is something, but that's not, that's not really what happens. I think it's in the it water, is. actually, but go ahead. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, uh, I think two things really help. One is your healthy competitive environment, right, where you have yeah. all these right, peers who are extremely smart, right, and uh, obviously you want to make sure that you're not left behind in any way and you're able to optimize the entire. And second, I think, like the entrance itself is so tough, right? <laughs> so you grind for two years and then, you know, finally get into campus. Um, I think that training, a lot of people don't appreciate it, but that training really sets you up for life. Right? Yeah. Because it, it is so selective. It gives a stamp of approval externally to the world that yes, this person can commit to something for two, three years and he can go through it. Right? Which is one of the key things that we did, you know, in entrepreneurship. Like you really have to commit yourself to something and be at it for the next few years, right? Yeah. That's the Awesome. That that's a great answer. How did you find my pull-in and what was the pinpoint there that that you two find mm-hmm. is central? Actually, before that, I only solved those problems which I personally faced. I'm not able to solve you know problems that somebody else has seen <laughs> and I'm not able to relate with them. And that is also something which is common across my companies. And so even in the first one, what you were trying to solve was something which I faced mm-hmm. during college is how do you really share money with friends? Ends up being a very awkward situation, <laughs> you know, when you're sharing money with friends. Right. People end up losing friends, right? <laughs> and, like, and I still owe like a few thousand bucks to somebody. I don't know who. Like, <laughs> so, you know, and all that stuff happens. So yeah, I think that that was like, uh, again, going back to the whole, you know, money moment, like why is it so hard to move? So that came in together in a very personal way that, okay, now it's being faced by me and my friends. So how do we really simplify it? Initially, it was not, I mean, I didn't really jump into it after graduation. Uh, because it was just an idea at that time, a very high-level idea. So I like spent some time on it. I went to 
uh, Sony in Japan. I worked there as an engineer. I got a really like good grasp of the Japanese culture. I love those, love that country. Really amazing people there. How long were you there? Two years. Yeah. Great. I lived there for 22 years. Oh wow! <laughs> Tokyo, like uh, you know, it's always always new whenever I go. So I went there again a couple of years back. <laughs> but yeah, so tend to jump into it immediately. Came back to India, you know, because this problem was more, I would say, specific and large enough from an Indian perspective. And plus, we had the home, you know, home down advantage. So uh, yeah, came to India and really launched this uh, after coming back. So that was the first one. We essentially were simplifying peer-to-peer payments, right? Mm. And to make it really fun, we added a social network on top. So very similar to Venmo from the US. Uh-huh. And later on, we realized, okay, something like Venmo exists. That was a good realization. <laughs> <laughs> we are not the only crazy one. You know, thinking about Validation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, yeah, that was the first one. Yeah, that was the Michael in uh, the whole story of yeah, that. Yeah, it went well. I think uh, we scaled up. And then finally, as you mentioned, you know, we got acquired uh, in 2017. But yeah, coming to, you know, Decentral, I think back in the day, in 2015, when you were starting out, one of the key challenges was just working with a bank and you know, integrating those money moment APIs. Working with a bank, like, of course, was a new experience for us, and we didn't know how hard it would be. Right. right? So this, this was a surprise that we actually ended up spending six months on this simple bank-to-bank money movement with one bank in the country. So that was, I would say, I figured that, okay, what's happening here? Initially, I dismissed it by thinking that, okay, probably it's more of a time thing and over time things will change, you know, banks will improve or something. <laughs> but yeah, fast forward five years later, you know, the, the company that had acquired us was doing exactly the same thing we did five years back with a different bank. Right? And they were spending eight months with this bank. Right? So yeah, that was the final trick. I said, okay, you know, <laughs> enough is enough. Nobody's solving this problem. The bank's not doing anything. Yeah, I'll have to do it. Five years ago, you found this was a problem. Today, you're taking on this problem head on with the central by connecting with the banks so that right. other startups that want to provide financial services don't have to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. What do you think right. about the market readiness today? Two things have happened right recently in the last uh, five, six years that have changed the market. One is this whole emergence of UPI, which is the unified payments interface. Right? That really showed the banks what APIs could be. So the bank, a lot of banks do not even consider APIs to be a part of the strategy. Like it did not even make you know, a small footnote in their implementations. Now it's actually occupying the front page probably, you know, in the history of these banks. Right? Mm. So that, that's, that's a huge change, right? Where the banks are recognizing this as a, a valid business opportunity for them. Right? And they realize they missed out to some of the faster moving down. That's a good change. And that is definitely what makes the timing better. Like if I would have started this five years back, for sure, it would be like too early. But yeah, I think right now from an Indian context, this is definitely a good time. The timing is still, I mean, the time to integrate is definitely still like pretty much similar. We definitely spend you know, four to five months integrating with the bank. But the good thing is it's a one-time effort now, right? Because what we are saving is these thousands of entrepreneurs' future time, right? And money, which would otherwise have gone based on repeating that problem over and over again. So what you do is you actually integrate with the bank yourself so that nobody else ever has to do it again. And then you create APIs on the other side that says, if you want to integrate with Bank X, don't worry about it. We've already done it. And you can connect us. So how long does it take if a, a big company with legacy systems and stuff like that, they want to integrate with a bank? Before you were saying it took you six months, it took this other big company eight months. How long is it now? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. It, it does not change. <laughs> so, no, no, for you, for you it takes time. But now if they use your APIs, if they use Decentra, how long does it take? Yeah, yeah that part is substantially reduced. It's more than 10x reduced. Right? We have seen companies go live in two weeks. What type of companies would be your customers? 
who would be thinking about adding this financial services to their business? Obviously, you have the fintechs, you know, which are for sure one of the usual suspects, so to say. <laughs> so, so you have the neo banks, wealth managers, investment managers, companies which are in the lending space, right, in the credit space. So, yeah, those tend to be definitely, I would say, uh, you know, few of the early power users, right. Then you have these non-fintech categories, which are very interesting because these guys have, say, a huge volume for different use cases. Like, say, for example, these are logistical players or B2B marketplaces. And now they're adding financial services for their customers. So a great example would be B2B marketplace enabling instant settlements or instant payout for its sellers. Or a B2B marketplace enabling credit line for its sellers. Or enabling buy now, pay later, which is now, as you know, is a whole new phenomenon. <laughs> For its buyers, right? So these are these are the kind of I would say companies we typically cater to. Yeah. What do companies have to think about when they consider which fintech business model to add? Yeah, I think one is of course the first thing that they really plan for is what is their workflow like, right? So, for example, if there is an SME SaaS player serving these small SMEs in the country, for them, the offline presence or offline payment collection uh, is a huge pain point. That's one that they start about thinking of. That okay. We have to simplify these offline payments, so probably we need to start with uh, you know QR codes, UPI as the first point of interaction. Then they start thinking about more complex integrations, like integrating a business account, like a physical account can be integrated on the platform uh, for reconciliation purposes. And then something like a card instrument, right, where some of these marketplaces or these SME players want to issue prepaid cards or co-branded credit cards to their sellers or merchants for digitizing their spends. So yeah, the workflow is for sure the first thing they'll think of. The second thing is monetization. Uh, in fact, embedding financial services or embedding banking in itself is a key, I would say, gateway you know, to monetize, right? Embedded finance, it's a thing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of these companies have just like burned money to acquire customers and are now thinking, okay, how do we monetize these users, right? So uh, yeah, monetization for sure uh, is something that helps. Third one is a lot of these companies think from a loyalty or a lock-in standpoint, that what else can we provide, which will reinforce our branding to these customers. So that is where, again, having a card presence or a co-branded bank account really helps. And what does um, banking as a service look like in the context of India today? Are there other players that are providing this type of service? How has the demand look like there? It's definitely a new space. Um, I don't, like, we don't have too many players yet. But for sure, I think the pace at which they're coming in, we'll have quite a few uh, in this year and next year. I think we have probably a couple of years behind US when it comes to the whole evolution of banking as a service and the way people look at it. So yeah, I think it's yet to hit like a full mature stage. Still, I would say decently early. But a good thing is that this is the time to really be one of the early movers because lock-in effects are very high here. It's an infrastructure business after all. So <laughs> it's very hard for a company to switch infrastructure. Yeah, and how, how is the regulation? Are they supportive of doing mm-hmm. you know, open API or provide mm-hmm. API integrations? Yeah, regulation is quite supportive, actually. Interestingly, uh, this is one of the plus points of, you know, apart from the others, you know, in India, is um, the regulator is really supportive in terms of digitizing everything, right? So right from your onboarding cycles, like they're trying to digitize your KYC verification with the introduction of video KYC, which is being mandated now for all bank account opening which used to happen offline earlier. Yeah, I think, and then the usual financial instruments application, like application for a loan, application for a credit card, those are getting digitized day by day. So I think, yeah, the regulator is really supportive. And in fact, all the policies and circulars are 
in the purview of you know, like keeping APIs in mind. And the good thing is they really understand APIs, what they, what they, what they do. So that's also hard to find in many regulators, right? <laughs> many of them don't even get that. I have a sense, and one of the reasons why we do this show is because I think we all have a sense that at some level, every company should be a tech company and every company should be a fintech company. There's no reason, if you're going to be embedding finance everywhere, every company should be able to do this, right? Was the implementation of the unified payments interface a watershed? It's kind of unique to India, right? How do you think that that changes the game for banking as a service in India? And how does that make it different from the rest of the world, from your perspective? What it does is it provides like sort of this initial bed to build upon. So if you look at the, for example, if I were to launch a banking as a service right now in uh, you know Vietnam or Philippines, for yeah. example, right? Like probably a nightmare to start with. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start, right? Because so, right, there are no rails, right? You can't ride on anything. Exactly, right? So we'll have to probably build a lot of stuff. We'll have to build something like UPI probably you know, over a couple of years before we can do something. So I think yeah, that's, that's the fundamental advantage. Like you get this you know, ready-made public rails. Uh, I mean, public in the sense that at least you have these rails through the bank. They're not really open source. You still have to go through the gatekeepers. That is the bank. But yes, at least there are rails you know, on which you can build upon. And the second, I think, which is a fundamental advantage is it really forces you to be innovative in terms of what banking services you want to offer. Right. Because simple money transfers just doesn't cut it. That is already being solved. Right. So you have to go beyond, you have to probably solve, say, cross-border remittance or you know, simplify account opening, right? And those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, we've seen some of the biggest payment companies in India actually move away from payments only into insurance, to be fair, because right. the margins in just making a payment somewhere are relatively low. And you also see companies like, you know, Grab and Gojek and these other companies in Southeast Asia getting into financial services, including insurance and banking as well. So they must see a massive opportunity here. Are those companies already using your services or starting to use the services? Yeah, I think some of them are for sure. Like we do so a few payment service providers, are some of these hyper-local players which are trying to solve, you know, say offline payments in right. a particular region in South India, you know, in West India, etc. So that those kind of players are there, definitely. Players which are looking to expand beyond payments and want to become like a full-fledged, like a payments ecosystem provider rather than just a payment gateway. And as you mentioned, like insurance is a good space to enter. Even like just enabling, you know, uh, treasury would be a great space, right? Yeah. Huge, right? Short-term money markets and stuff like that, yeah? Absolutely. Go ahead. I interrupted you. Yeah, no, I think yeah, that, those, are, those are a few examples of, yeah, I think where I see a few of the you know, payment service providers moving in. And uh, yeah, a couple of them are already using us. Happy to welcome more. Happy to welcome more. We opened our pizza shop and anybody that wants pizza can get a pizza here. Um, is there an insurance angle here as well? You know, the banks are one of the biggest, you know, the bank insurance business is one of the biggest ways of distributing insurance everywhere in the world. Do your APIs handle that too? And do you see yourselves actually as a potential distribution source for insurance products, you know, dealing with people like Digit and other of the neo insurance companies in India, where there's mm-hmm. massive innovation in that space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's an interesting one, actually. I think uh, you're giving me some food for thought. I haven't thought about that, to be honest. Of, <laughs> uh, well, you know, if we can do something on the distribution front, we do distribution, I mean, in a different way where companies are able to streamline the payment settlements for these right, SMEs yeah. and especially the offline merchants. That, that is something that's already happening. 
But yes, I think the insurance one is something which uh, we haven't really looked into like, uh, as a market itself. But yeah, could be could be very interesting to look at. Yeah, sorry. I mean, the idea for me was if you're already building these APIs to connect services to banks, and if one of the services that the banks provide is insurance distribution through their bank assurance channel, it just seemed like a natural thing to do. Just another service you could add to the API, if that makes sense. Right, right. Yeah, you don't have to. You don't necessarily even have to have an answer for it now, but it's just a way to think about how that business could work, right? Because yeah. with penetration so low in India, just like it is in the rest of Asia, it's just a neat way to be able to use the stuff you've already built to say, here's another service we can offer. One of the key advantage for using Decentral is also for distribution, right? For any mm-hmm. companies that want to acquire customers instead of having to go about and pay ridiculous fee for digital marketing. They can then partner with banks or other companies to tap into their client base as well, Mm -hmm. which is something that's pretty interesting given that today the cost for digital marketing has increased so much. And these Mm -hmm. Facebook, Google companies are, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. basically monopolizing the market. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like that. that's just interesting to look at. It. Yeah, actually, that's a great, that's a great idea that you've given to our content marketing team. I'll, I'll share it with them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can definitely level that. Um, but yeah, so totally agree. I think because we are able to tap into these accounts which are already existing with these banks you know, uh, from a connectivity perspective, if there's a marketplace or like an SME player which is which has connections or which has customers belonging to different banks in the country, they can potentially tap into. Them, right? Or wants to acquire customers belonging to different banks, they can definitely tap into it. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> it's one of the best reasons to come on the podcast, get business ideas. <laughs> how does it work under the hood? Because mm-hmm. there must be so much work that you need to do. Yeah. The, how does it work with a technical team? Mm-hmm. Like, do you go about and connect API one on one with the banks? And like, mm-hmm. when startups come to you, what do they need to do? Yeah, it's pretty much like that. I mean, like, once you integrate with the bank, it's process of you know, rinse and repeat with a different bank. A right? few of the things change. Of course, you have to first establish that relationship, find the right stakeholders with the bank, you know, make sure they're comfortable with the strategy that you're taking. And I think that is that process has gotten easier over time, right? Because once you do it a couple of times, then you know, okay, this is like this is the steps that you have to do. <laughs> Interestingly, I think after a while, um, I think it's, it's a position that we have all uh, like I would say reached over the last uh, you know few months is where the banks start getting interested, right? And they reach out to us. So this, this was new, right? Where when we started out, we had to really identify who the right bank partners are. Now the banks which are ready with their APIs are coming to us and saying, hey, we see that you're doing great with these banks. You know, we also have APIs. You know, why don't you integrate with these? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so that's a good position to be in where we are able to prioritize you know, the banks and we don't have weight to get the right person, the right bank in, in pipeline. But yeah, I think from an integration perspective, from the customer side, yes. Once these integrations are done by us, uh, then we streamline them to such a level that, you know, any developer or even a product manager, you know, a CXO, CIO who doesn't really do hands-on API development is able to easily understand in a very simple to understand language that, okay, this is how it works. These are a few modules and these are the APIs we have to integrate. Yeah. I see. So is it similar to open banking then for banking as a service? I would say not, not exactly. There will be some components, um, but I think we are more on the platform banking side which is where you really go deep into these instruments one by one and like allow creation of instruments and moving money physically. Open banking, of course, you know, as we know, is mostly around data aggregation to and from manner. So data is a component here, but that is not the key component we're looking at. Uh, we're looking at really movement of money and enabling these physical instruments to be created, mm. like bank accounts and card 
that is what like I would say solves the problem at a deeper level rather than just data on the surface. Do you have a data science team? In other words, are you setting up an ML ops and a data science team so that all of the data that kind of goes through your system, you can then, you know, anonymize, analyze, and do sort of post facto analysis and figure out maybe even product ideas for the banks. If you see what types of flows are taking place, it's also a great business as well. Yes. Yeah, we do have that in the pipeline. Uh, haven't done that as of yet, but yes, for sure, that's something which which we plan to do at some point. Second business idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah th- this is already on a drawing board. I didn't think that that was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the natural uh, transition when it comes mm-hmm. to banking products and data sharing, mm-hmm. uh, you think about screen scraping as the first generation of data right. sharing, the Yodli right. of the world where they screen scrape customers' accounts and web app to get their mm-hmm. financial data. And then we move on to open banking, which allows data to be shared between banks and third parties and from startup to yeah. startup. And then finally, now we're on platform banking, which is on-the-shelf financial products, basically, mm-hmm. where anyone can just offer fin- uh, fintech service to their mm-hmm. clients, right? So given the context of India and also you know, the U- uh, developments in the U.S., because that's where platform banking is the most advanced. Do you think that the evolution will be similar in terms of what people need and the solution? I think, yeah, there are some similarities, but there are definitely a lot of differences. One is, like, as you rightly mentioned, you know, the whole original idea of screen scraping, which Plaid did uh, so successfully. <laughs> like that. Sometimes people call it a billion dollar hack, right? It's, like, it's actually a hack. Yep. It's a yep. billion dollar company, wow. <laughs> 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 But yeah, I think that, that's something that doesn't play in all the countries, right? So, I mean, you can't do that in Europe for sure. No. India, India is, again, you know, is very strict when it comes to data privacy. No company in India has done screen scraping at that scale. And the banks definitely don't look at it favorably. I think same with a lot of countries in Southeast Asia as well, Singapore, a couple of other countries as well. So I think, yeah, it's, it's not going to be the same. But uh, we do see some fundamental ways getting built here, like the UPI, of course, which came in from payment standpoint. And now you have account aggregator, which is a new one, which is kind of open banking between the regulators. So it's like one regulator entity talking to another regulator entity in a common data format. Mm-hmm. I would say a new thing, uh, you know, for pretty much most of the countries in the world. They haven't thought about this ever. So yeah, I think these are, these are fundamental differences which are there in India um, and the way regulation is evolving. Platform banking, I believe, will be quite similar because the fundamental process of or the fundamental way an account is structured, a card is structured, is pretty much the same. Uh, across the world. What changes is, of course, nuances or the you know miniature differences of process of that. But I think from a customer relationship standpoint, it's pretty much the way the customer, the way customers look at it is the same. It's not really so much different. So I think that part will remain the same. So we can definitely take a lot of learnings from platform banking in the US and apply that to here in India as well. I see. And what does the future look like for platform banking for you? How will this develop, mm-hmm. let's say, three years from now, five years from now? I think a few things are quite unpredictable. Like, for example, the good thing about having a very supportive regulator is, you know, they really move and they really try to issue regulations and circulars which support you. Right? Sometimes these are unexpected as well, right? So, <laughs> like, um, they recently barred uh, MasterCard. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I saw that. So, yeah, so they barred MasterCard, you know, which is the whole new thing in itself. Probably <laughs> so has, like, 30% market share in the cards in the country, yeah. They can't issue any more cards. And they barred uh, HDFC from issuing new cards as well, right? which is India's largest private bank in the country. 
These kind of things are very unexpected, right? And uh, thankfully, of course, we are not directly regulated, so we don't get directly impacted by RBI or any regulator. But I think yeah, these these things will be, uh, I would say, like these things are yet to be seen. You know how RBI looks for a five-year, ten-year horizon when it comes to platform banking. Uh, in fact, it would actually be advantageous if they can introduce some sort of a basic regulation, right, to recognize it as an institution or as a technology partner player. What that would do is that would make sure that yes. Everybody understands, or you know, at least the entrepreneurs understand the position of companies that are in the banking and service space. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's one key thing which I believe will definitely happen in the next three or five years because these guys are thinking about it, and there were some rumors in the news as well around the same. Yeah, I think from that, from a business standpoint, uh, the future looks quite promising, right? and especially this comes in both from a primary research and a secondary thing, right? So primary because we are seeing it firsthand, you know, our own customers and our own like numbers growing on a day-to-day basis, that really gives validation that yes, customers are recognizing the value of this and they're really realizing the problem that we're solving. And at the same time, the banks are, you know, as we discussed, the banks are coming to us. So that's a whole different thing altogether where the supply side is getting sorted on its own. <laughs> and I expect that to happen even more because a lot of the banks in India still haven't digitized themselves. They are still running on mainframes. Most of them are still running on mainframes. And most of them don't even have APIs yet. I mean, the smaller ones, uh, not mm-hmm. the top ones. So yeah, that would be an interesting one to have. When I think about it, right, for for banking as a service, you need to deal with many banks. So what you want to do is to get volume quickly by connecting with one or two banks and Mm -hmm. then two main banks that people use and then be able to serve the customer on a highly scalable perspective. But when it comes to Southeast Asia, the market is super fragmented with different countries, different regulations. How do you think Southeast Asia will get into the game? What does banking as a service look like for Southeast Asia? Yeah, I think yeah, Southeast Asia is definitely a whole surprise ball <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's definitely hard to predict there because one, you know, because we are not physically there yet, like as a company, you know, it's mostly in India right now. I think one of the things which will happen is the thing that would really connect uh, a lot of these fragmented economies, as you mentioned, could be the adoption of a common payment system. And there has been talk of it for a while. I think you might have heard Singapore has been thinking of adopting UPI. Nepal has been thinking of it. Nepal recently did a bit. Bhutan recently did. So Nepal also been doing it. So I think that, that, that is a very, very powerful thing to happen where all these countries could really come on a common race and you could just send money you know, from one account in Singapore to Philippines in seconds, right? And I think that needs to happen really because um, yeah, otherwise it becomes very difficult you know, to really build anything from a banking as a service standpoint, which connects all of them together. Hypothetically, if that doesn't happen, then I think it definitely becomes a country by country game, you know, where you just go to one of these countries and then try to, you know, use the most popular banks in each of these countries, like the way we are doing, uh, and then offer it to the fintechs and the marketplaces there. That is one way to go. I think that might play out, or the other one, which might be more exciting, would be a connected one. At least government needs to move mm-hmm. if they don't want crypto to take mm-hmm. over the payment system, especially yeah, cross border. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, in fact, we serve a lot of crypto companies, uh, you know, indirectly. The way blockchain is taking off and the way people are taking to crypto, yeah, that's, that's, that's a whole new level. It would be a paradigm change for banking in this region and actually globally if UPI was adopted across countries. But I think it would be really difficult to do from a governmental perspective because you'd lose a little bit of control internally about your own inflows and outflows of money. But also just from a pure startup perspective... Like what would happen to a company like TransferWise or these other companies that are just based on making cross-border payments easier for people if the rails were there? Because what they did was they just kind of, like you said, they hacked the rails together. They opened their own bank accounts and said, it just looks like your account kind of thing. Right. <laughs> right? 
Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting one as well. I think, yeah, for sure, there will be a shift in the cross-border. I think a few of these companies are already actively thinking about blockchain. For sure. Yeah, I think, in fact, it's quite possible that the whole blockchain might get embedded in cross-border finance faster than UPI, purely because of regulation. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's in, in, a, in a way, it's probably going to have to. And to be fair, when I saw the name of your company, Decentro, I originally, you know, my head just went right to DeFi because he had decentralized. Used to decentralized, right? So there's a little bit of a head fake. But at some point, you're going to have to get there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a big believer in the whole blockchain space. I personally have invested a lot, of course, in crypto as well. But yeah, crypto is I push, like, you know, <laughs> I really believe in this whole kind of decentralized economy coming. Yeah. yeah. It's happening whether anybody likes it or not. It's happening. Yeah. 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 Have you ever come across Promptay in Thailand where you can do instant transfer, but in reality, it's not really instant because mm-hmm. the banks do bulk settlement with each other yeah. at the end of the day. So yeah. what does UPI look like in reality? Uh, yeah, I think we need to go a bit technical on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll give you a bit, a bit of context on the way UPI operates. Actually, there's a different protocol that UPI uses. It's called IMPS, which is the immediate money transfer system. So what UPI is, UPI is mostly an abstraction of IMPS. And uh, what IMPS does is uh, NPCI, which is a Section 25 you know, non-government company, a lot of people think it's actually a government company. It's not really a government company. <laughs> it's like it's regulated, yes, but it's not a government company. So it's just a consortium of banks like Visa and Mastercard. That's how they built out, you know, this card network of Dupe as well. So yeah, NPC has been, you know, of course, at the forefront of this. They were the, they were the ones who designed this entire system by NPS, which is image money transfer between two banks. And what they do is they have a central switching system. So if you send money from a bank A to a bank B in India, uh, it flows through NPCI. And um, they essentially match, you know, that, okay, who is the recipient account number, which bank does it belong to, et cetera, et cetera. That's how they get to send the money there. But if you look at it, the key challenge still remains from a usability perspective, because if you're using IMPS, you still have to enter the, you know, that long 14, 16-digit account number of a person, along with the bank code, which is terribly cumbersome to enter. And a lot of people make mistakes by entering these account numbers and IRC codes as well. Yeah. So what... What these guys thought was, okay, why don't we abstract it? Right? Because ultimately, it's a combination of two numbers, right? yeah, account number and IFSC. So why don't we combine it and form one unique ID, which identifies each, each and every account in the country? So what they did was they abstracted it into something called a UPI handle. And it looks like some unique identifier and the, the processing. And at the back end, NPCI has a mapping of you know, this ID to the respective account. So... Yeah, that's, that's essentially how it happens. So if I enter your ID, it goes to NPCI, they you know, map it to the underlying account number, IFSC code, and then they send it out to the respective bank. Mm, and the actual settlement mm. flow, does it happen in real time too? Yep, yep. It's real time. That's pretty amazing. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. This, this turns out to be expensive as well, of course, as you can imagine, because it's going in, money is really moving in real time. So this, this, is more, this is a more expensive method of money transfer as compared to the regular batch transfer. I love this statement. I think this should be the title of this episode. Money is just bits and bytes on somebody else's ledger. It sounds like something a guy at the end of the bar would say in such a great statement. <laughs> Some tired banking dude would say it's such a great thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rohit, for spending time with us today. We're learning so much about banking as a service and also UPI and a payment infrastructure. Hopefully our listeners will feel the same way. That was awesome. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, thanks, man. Thanks, man. Good to be on the show.